0: Welcome to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. My name is Simon Garnett, editor at Eurozine. Eurozine is a network of cultural magazines, including more than 90 partner journals and associated publications and organisations from across Europe and beyond. On eurozine.com, we publish selected content from the network, translated into English and many other European languages. Welcome to the Eurozine podcast. I'm today talking to uh, James Miller. James is the professor of politics and liberal studies, and faculty director of the MA in Creative Publishing and Critical Journalism at the New School for Social Research. And most importantly, for our purposes, Jim is the editor of Public Seminar. James, welcome to the Eurozine podcast. It's great to be talking to you. We're going to be talking about collaborative focal point fascism for our times. Which we've just released on Public Seminar and Eurozine simultaneously. But before we start talking about the focal point, can you say a thing or two about Public Seminar? Absolutely, and it's really
1: wonderful to uh, join you for this podcast. Public Seminar is an online journal that was founded six or seven years ago by my colleague Jeffrey Goldfarb, a professor of sociology at the New School for Social Research. And uh, the uh, title of the journal is based on one of the institutions of the New School for Social Research. When it was founded in 1933 by refugees from Nazi Germany as the university in exile, uh, the first uh, eight, nine professors to constitute the university in exile had a monthly meeting where they would share their research with each other. And this institution became known as the General Seminar. So Jeffrey Goldfarb's idea was to take what had been a local uh, interdisciplinary institution that was started out of necessity by uh, refugees trying to keep um, themselves intellectually stimulated. It became a tradition at the New School for Social Research and Jeff wanted to uh, create an online version of uh, an interdisciplinary open conversation on the issues of our time so that's the
0: origin of uh, public seminar can you say a thing or two about how public seminar publishes i mean you I, I mean you've got this weekly issue but then you also intersperse these with the special issues well um i joined public
1: seminar only a year ago uh at the invitation of claire potter and uh, she had already sort of moved the publication towards a weekly uh, issue, uh, even though it's an online publication, just to give us a focus on trying to really seriously edit and curate uh, a handful of stories uh, because uh, as uh, it's actually really difficult to... Uh, tailor uh, academic writing for a general audience, and in its early days, Public Seminar essentially was a blog site for professors at the New School for Social Research. And uh, that's one function that um, it could serve, but uh, the quality of those blog posts was highly variable. And as we began to get content and, and sought content from outside uh, the uh, uh, confines of the faculty uh, uh, at the new school, uh, we wanted to uh, sort of raise the level of professionalism in the editing process and aim uh, explicitly at a more general audience. And to do that, we had to, um, we had to publish less and make it better. Uh, was uh, uh, the decision that was made? Let's
0: move right on to the to the topic we want to talk about today, which is focal point fascism for our times. We need not tell the listener that this is a, an allusion to uh, Chamberlain's ill-fated comment, "Peace for our times," uh, 1938. Whether whether or not it the 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 the, 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 the allusion is going to uh, be equally ill-fated is yet to be seen we can we can only hope that it is but in november the 6th or actually uh, december as in europe we think november the 6th is the moment of truth but in fact it's going to be probably in january that one we know the results of the election that will be the time to then uh, uh, say whether or not we are really seeing a new fascist and will trump uh hand over uh, in a orderly manner this is the subject of much speculation um but let's just go back to the origins of um, why we're talking about this now. In, in uh, January 2020, at the beginning of this year, uh, the historian Peter Gordon published a, an article in the New York Review of Books, uh, which was itself then a response to a previous scandal in June in 2019, when Alexandria Casio cortez had... Compared the situation with Mexican immigrants on on the border, uh, and and their treatment to the the treatment of of Jews in and other opposite, opposite uh, opponents of National Socialism in the concentration camps. Of Nazi Germany. So the concentration camp comparison was received quite controversially, particularly uh, the United States uh, Holocaust Memorial Museum uh, objected to this quite strongly and uh, and, uh, emphasising the singularity of the Holocaust. This was then greeted with a letter by scholars, historians, uh, social scientists actually stressing the fact that, you know, her very purpose of studying the Holocaust was in order to be able to identify uh, recurring trends, movements uh, that could uh, indicate uh, that this kind of threat hadn't Hadn't disappeared. Now this was this is the background of the of the debate. And Jim, you know this debate far better than I do. So can you can you uh, elaborate?
1: You know, you've given a very good, um, crisp summary of uh, of an academic debate in the uh, uh, columns of the New York Review of Books but that debate was unfolding against a much broader political backdrop in which the word fascism had been increasingly deployed in uh, political polemics uh, among activists and uh, people on uh, particularly coming from the democratic socialist left in the United States, these would be uh, uh, they, they, in electoral politics. They would be supporters of Bernie Sanders and of the uh, uh, the the far left of the Democratic Party. Uh, but uh, there was on the ground, almost from the moment that uh, Trump was inaugurated, there was a movement of quote-unquote resistance. And the very word resistance is already redolent of uh, uh, the 30s and 40s and the resistance movement in France to the German occupation. And uh, within this activist cadre, there was a, uh, a a sense on the ground that um, the future of American liberal constitutional democracy was at risk with the presidency of Donald J. Trump. And uh, this concern uh, deepened as time went by. It is, uh, the the grassroots concern uh, was part of what fueled the the impeachment of the president, which uh, of course he failed to be convicted in the Senate. Uh, It also fueled on the ground uh, confrontations at uh, on college campuses when um, alt-right, alternative-right conservative speakers would be brought to campus. They would be uh, confronted, uh, sometimes physically, by uh, 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 neo-anarchists dressed in black, wearing black masks and uh, wielding baseball bats and calling themselves anti-fascists or Antifa. So uh, there's a much broader uh, political background in the United States to uh, the dispute that was being carried on in the pages of the New York Review of Books.
0: So that was that was at the beginning of this year, and then the, the debate kind of, you know, caught the attention, and then it was it was drawn out a bit. But what did you particularly feel needed to be elaborated on? What needed to be developed that hadn't been? I mean, what, I mean, uh, it's a leading question because I I was. I was involved uh, in this debate too, but you know what is what was it in your mind that we were trying to do that wasn't hadn't already been done?
1: You know there are many aspects to uh, making this kind of analogy or, or or using a category like fascism, and contested concepts uh, that are uh, uh, weaponized in political. Uh, debate and uh, uh, political uh, warfare even, they raise interesting questions to somebody who's a historian of ideas, which is actually my uh, PhD is in, History of Ideas. So I was just fascinated in it. But I also found myself feeling that there was a risk earlier in the year when it seemed like Bernie Sanders might become actually the Democratic candidate against Trump that there could be fissures and splits in the left in America and that there would be a kind of um, failure to produce a united front that to me was reminiscent of the uh, horrible failures of uh, uh, social democrats and communists in Germany in 1932 and 33 to recognize the threat they were facing and therefore to, uh, because of their mutual antagonism, to help leave the door open to the election of uh, Adolf Hitler and the subsequent consolidation of power in Germany. So uh, I had found myself uh, thinking in terms of Weimar and uh, risk, I suppose, even before the election of Trump, because I had uh, been in uh, Europe, I had seen uh, what was happening in the Czech Republic uh, on a trip, and then I'd gone to Poland and could see what was happening uh, to the the t- sharp turn to the right in poland and then i ended up on that trip in dresden where there was a neo-nazi kind of uh, demonstration group that had formed under the rubric of we the people which had been uh, the uh, uh, chant of the anti-Soviet demonstrators at the time when the communist regime fell in what had been East Germany, so I, I was aware that there was also in Europe something was different in the air at that point, and so that was my concern with this. Uh, on the other hand, what's won and what's lost by labeling something fascist? Uh, you know that. Uh, The Weimar analogy I had no problem with. I took it in a very specific way. Whereas calling something fascist, it just seems like it's a pejorative term. It's too easily uh, deployed, it seemed to me, on the left. I should add, by the way, that it's not just on the left that Americans talk about fascism. There is on the right uh, a view that liberalism, modern-day American liberalism, is itself fascistic. Uh, and uh, we shouldn't lose sight of that. Uh, followers of Leo Strauss have attacked Woodrow Wilson, uh, one of the key architects of the uh, administrative state, uh, and claim that he is the progenitor of a characteristically American form of fascism.
0: Yes, yeah, so, so I mean, actually, this was, this was the point made by one of our contributors, uh, Anton Chekhov's office, in his article, uh, The Ghosts of Weimar. Um, pointing out that the fascism critique has actually been made as much by the right as it has by the left uh, and precisely aimed at liberals. So his point is that, um, you know, the accusation of fascism is a way of placing one's opponent, you know, uh, beyond the pale to tar them. Absolutely. Tie them with the fascist brush, and thereby to uh, to not have to engage uh, with them, um, you know, on a, on a level political playing field. It's 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 a it's a way of smearing one's opponents. This um, so sort to of say maneuver can also, I think, be said of. Uh, The the anti-fascist discourse. And in fact, one of our questions in the editorial was, you know, what function, and I'm quoting here, what functions do both terms, fascism and anti-fascism, serve in the political competition? Do they tend to be used in ways that are discursive or divisive? What does their inflationary use tell us about the praxis of contemporary democracy? (laughs) The praxis of contemporary democracy.
1: I'm not even sure, uh, uh, you know, that in itself is uh, would have to be unpacked as a phrase. What we mean by it, uh, but I think one thing that we can say, based on you know what you were just reporting about the uh, mobilization of the uh, term fascism on both the right and the left, is I think that in um, both of these cases, it's uh, it, it it's absolutely and essentially linked to anxieties about what is democracy today and uh, what. Role is there uh, for um, government and big government? On the right, there's a concern about a kind of corporatist structure uh, in which deals are hashed out between uh, unelected leaders of unions and of Uh, of uh, bureaucracies Uh, and on the left there's a concern that democracy increasingly in contemporary societies is a complete and utter sham Uh, and uh, the uh, anti-fascists in america it matters that they hold this very radical view of what democracy should be in terms of a a a horizontal nesting network of institutions that are um, as fully participatory as possible. So I, I, I do think that the uh, d- debate comes uh, arises at a, uh, at a point where what had seemed to be a stable consensus about the value of liberal democracy with constitutional limits on majoritarianism uh, has seemed to unravel and people uh, on both the left and the right are no longer um, Okay, with a kind of consensus view of what liberal representative democracy is supposed to
0: mean, as you say in in the editorial as well, the uh, kind of debate about you know, liberalism and, and and fascism, of course, is is a is one that goes back, I mean, to Marcuse and the you know, the 68 milieu uh, Deleuze, um, and actually you engage with. Um, uh, Natasha Leonard on, on particularly this uh, issue, um, and talk a bit about uh, the the critique that comes from this this tradition of, of of liberalism as as being inherently fascist. It seems to me that, that actually Leonard has had has some quite solid kind of grounds for using the anti-fascist uh, label the the anti-fascist term. And Antifa particularly but anti-fascism also historically has always been prepared to resort to violence uh, and the question is then does violence corrupt and you know what what, do we, what constitutes violence and is it violence against objects or is it violence against persons etc And then she replies, well, actually, what does it mean? What does it mean to talk about nonviolence when when we're talking about, uh, you know, people uh, who are themselves, you know, walking down, you know, the streets with, you know, with with, uh, weapons openly threatening, they are themselves violent. What do we, can we talk about anti-nonviolence? Well, a couple of comments. One is, I
1: think, for uh, Natasha Leonard uh, uh, to uh, defend Antifa is to stake her flag on the far left and to draw a line uh, in the sand uh, where she uh, will be a fellow traveler maybe of some left liberals but she herself is not um, a left liberal she's deeply suspicious of uh, the technocratic drift of uh, left liberal social democracy uh, in um, uh, the United States and Europe. Uh, So uh, the debate over violence, it seems to me, uh, when I was uh, talking with Natasha, Yes, of course it's true that in a city like Portland, there is an armed uh, right-wing militia that shows up at demonstrations carrying guns uh, um, and uh, pretty powerful weaponry. Uh, but the the point of non-violent civil resistance and the argument uh, in favor of it ha- as a tactic has to do with a kind of evaluation of what you gain um, uh, morally by presenting yourself in this way. Uh, and I, I think my conversation with Natasha, it, it could only go so far because she was uh, I think in her heart of hearts, she's not really committed to a kind of exploring uh, the potential of uh, Gandhian and post Gandhian um, forms of nonviolent civil resistance, uh, which are aimed at an audience and trying to convince people uh, that justice uh, 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 lies clearly on one side and injustice lies very clearly on the other side. Uh, the problem tactically when you get into street fighting in a city like Portland is that uh, the, uh, the Antifa demonstrators have in effect ceded the moral high ground and uh, essentially have handed a weapon, a rhetorical weapon at least, to uh, Donald Trump and his supporters. So uh, you know there was. Uh, I think there's a much longer conversation that um, would need to be had about nonviolent tactics and where they belong in left politics at the moment in the United States. I would say that uh, Occupy Wall Street was avowedly nonviolent, but wink, wink. Uh, it, it it basically permitted neo-anarchist trashing of property and. Vandalism on the sides and it was all a way to try to bait the police into overreacting and uh, to uh, gain sympathy for protesters and To some extent it worked in the early days of Occupy Wall Street And then at a certain point it stopped working and part the police stopped overreacting and uh, Then suddenly all you saw was the vandalism rather than the police overreaction. So I I, the, The same issues have arisen in the Black Lives Matter movement uh, and uh, they will uh, they just naturally arise in the American context because there's a long tradition now going back to the civil rights movement of the 60s of nonviolent resistance and there's an equally robust sense that those uh, nonviolent tactics may be insufficient in certain cases. So uh, here in America the left oscillates between uh, the two tactical strategic positions.
0: Let's move to another of the articles, and this this one was Jan Werner-Müller, whose article, Authoritarian Populism is Bad Enough, makes the argument on conceptual lines that talking about fascism uh, is simply not accurate from a historical but also from a political concept, and that, in fact, we have a perfectly good description of what we are seeing in the US with Trump, but also in Europe uh, with politicians like Salvini or Le Pen or Bjorn Hooker of the RFD. Why do, we need, why do we need a concept of fascism? How far does this argument go? Is it enough to say we don't need to talk about fascism because we've got a concept? It might, it might be uh, a topic that the political scientists can debate, but does this have any impact on how we think about Trump and the like politically? No. (laughs) Uh,
1: My conclusion after working with you to uh, uh, edit these, uh, commission and edit these pieces, is that uh, people are going to use these categories however they want because uh, uh, populism, fascism, democracy... All of them are essentially contested concepts that have entered into the modern-day political lexicon. And uh, the cat's out of the bag. I mean, uh, uh, there's nothing that a professor of politics at Princeton can say that's going to convince somebody like Natasha Leonard to stop talking about American fascism. And really, I mean, uh, another uh, excellent piece that we published by David Bell argues that the correct term that we should use is Caesarism. Now, this is uh, comes out of David's excellent uh, new book, Men on Horseback, in which he points out the uh, tradition of the authoritarian strongman that accompanies the rise of modern democracy as a kind of shadow and a threat. Uh, And uh, I think David Bell is absolutely correct about this uh, shadow threat of democracy and that, um, uh, you know, the imagery of Napoleon, uh, is, uh, is one of the shadow threats of modern democracy when democracy is reborn as a serious uh, um, uh, movement uh, in an attempt to create new, more democratic institutions, in my view, uh, during the French Revolution, and from there spreads around the world, uh, including back to the United States, where it um, uh, triggers a, a democratizing movement in the United States itself as well. Uh, But, uh, you know, so we could call it Caesarism, but of course nobody's going to use that term because it's too uh, uh, archaic sounding. And uh, Jan's own term populism, the way he used it in his famous book on populism, is itself deployed as a pejorative, snarky term. I, I, I don't, think populism as a word uh, in english certainly appears for the first time in the united states and it's an attempt to make america more democratic and the idea that uh, you know populism is a non-starter seems to me very peculiar since uh, the rebirth of modern democracy uh, revolved around uh, staking a claim to popular sovereignty being the uh, the correct foundation for a just constitution. Uh, There are many institutional um, uh, challenges that arise out of trying to implement that uh, thought in practice. But to just uh, assume that um, people power or uh, uh, the attempt to have a more direct assertion of popular sovereignty is on its face a mistake it seems to me um, again that has its own problems i guess the way i would put it from a um, um, intellectual academic point of view is uh, labeling people pejoratively populist it, it keeps you from doing the hard work of actually defending Um, liberal limits on democratic majoritarianism that are now under assault and attack because you just label the people you don't like as uh, being populist and then you're done with them. But, uh, you know, this kind of rhetoric, uh, that's, uh, political rhetoric uh, gets weaponized all the time. And in some ways, the vagueness of the terms as they're mobilized uh, does political work for different people and different um, relationships to these terms. So, uh, you know, trying to be fussy about it or have, you know, an, uh, a royal academy dictate what the correct terms are, that's never going to go anywhere as far as I'm concerned.
0: We've, we published, not in the focal point, but we, we co-published another text uh, by the German political scientist, uh, Philip Mano, uh, where he made a similar point, is that the populism uh, concept uh, is actually kind of a, an exclusory, has an exclusory function. Um, that uh, it's the, the paradox is that, uh, that, the, that in the name of pluralism, uh, the uh, populists are uh, are excluded. Um, in, in,
1: in, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly.
0: Um, so, I mean, and again, you know, it's in a sense to sort of to to you know, it's a formal, it's a formal way of delegitimizing, to use that term, again, of a political movement or a, or, a, or a way of articulating a set of political interests whose whose form one finds uh, repellent now i think you and i would have both agreed that the form is repellent but is there is there a sense you know that that's the 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 fascism critique but also the populism critique in connection with the us and the situation uh, is actually uh, a way of not engaging I mean, uh, you know, I mean, I remember, you know, after after 2015, 2015 the 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 you know, the post Clinton kind of Democrat debate was all about we need to go out and we need to then uh, talk to people that we've you know been systematically excluding. That kind of that good intention didn't last very long at all. Have we moved? Has the U.S. debate moved beyond that?
1: I think it's hard to say, uh, because. The United States at, at the moment is at uh, a point of maximum conflict, uh, uh, the likes of which I have only seen in my lifetime previously in uh, 1968 uh, during uh, in the aftermath of the assassination of Martin Luther King, Jr. And the massive uh, riots that swept across America and destroyed many predominantly black neighborhoods in American cities, uh, combined with a very uh, uh, increasingly vehement and violent anti-war movement that I was part of. So uh, I think that at the moment, um, we're coming, uh, you know, in a properly functioning democracy an election should be civil war by other means and you only hope that instead of resorting to warfare the votes will be counted the other side will retreat uh, 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 nonviolently, and there will be a transfer of power and i think that in the run-up to that moment uh, the rhetoric will be well it has become ever more heated on all sides And uh, what um, is actually going to happen is, at this point, I think anybody's guess. Uh, An awful lot depends on uh, whether Trump um, has been blustering and bullshitting, uh, which is often what he's all about, or whether, in fact, we're going to see armed right-wing militias show up at uh, polling uh, sites uh, around the country on Election Day. I think that it's a moment of testing for liberal democratic constitutionalists in the sense that they have to deal in some cases with clear Um, majorities um, that um, uh, have rejected uh, liberal restraints on protections for minority views. I don't think, by the way, this is the case in the United States because Trump, um, um, he became uh, the candidate of the Republican Party by winning pluralities, uh, almost never a majority in primary Uh, elections and then of course he did not win a majority of the votes he won the electoral college america's one of uh, the more uh, strikingly anti-democratic features uh, 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 that was uh, by design put into the American Constitution. So we'll see, I think the jury is out, but um, you know, Natasha and her team mobilize in one way and Trump and his team mobilize in another way. And um, caught in the middle are uh, those of us who uh, are trying to make s- sense out of all of it. And. Um, hoping for the best uh, and uh, lurching in some way towards a more inclusive as well as pluralistic um, democratic form of modern government.
0: Let's uh, just let that sink in Uh, and while we're doing so also think a bit about what the European comparison or shall we say the placing the US debate in a a European stroke global context can actually achieve uh, in, in terms of the way we think about concepts such as fascism and anti-fascism, and I think you know, as as, the, as you made a point in 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 the editorial, that you know, for a polity such as the U.S. but also the U.K., who uh, which have a very strikingly different history of democracy, uh, to talk about to talk about fascism and anti-fascism, but also to invoke the Weimar comparison. Is, is somehow more abstract than, than it is in let's say in Germany but also many of the other uh central European countries and polities who have this experience of you know the, their interwar democracies that then collapsed and uh, and these you know the the, the the pre-war authoritarianisms in not precisely the same form but in 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 a kind of a fascistic form reappeared onto the political scene and these kind of these kind of experiences are very real in in, in somewhere like germany although of course uh you know there is a, also a strong degree now of a kind of historical distance uh so i'm not saying that you know weimar uh, appears to the average german as ha- having happened only 20 years ago but there is a quite i think a qualitative difference in the way we talk about these things so i mean that would be one thing for me that, that you know uh, that's, that characterises the, the difference between, shall we say, a you know a US, a UK debate on these things, but also um, another thing, which is which is what our what our uh, another of our contributors, Misha Gabovich, has has talked about, and it, it is how the term anti-fascism uh, was used in the Soviet and post-Soviet space. That I found very interesting because, obviously, if you're talking, you know, for for you know an American to, to talk about anti-fascism, and for a Pole to talk about anti-fascism, you know, the two really, you know, the, the, the associations that come with this term couldn't couldn't be further apart, and even you know dissidents such as Adam Michnik were you know having been uh, dissidents having 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 really you know, suffered under, under the, under the regime, you know, they, they understand what authoritarianism is, but they, they wouldn't and couldn't use the anti-fascism term for precisely the reason that it is, it is for them, and uh, against the background of their historical experience tainted. So, you know, for me, that's, that's one way that it makes sense to talk, to talk about anti-fascism, you know, in a European context. Uh, the question I suppose is does, does the one sort of cancel out the other I mean does it does it mean that you know we can't ever talk about anti-fascism without having without invoking all this baggage I mean Gabovich also talks about a younger sort of 90s generation of DIY anti-fascist youth who have actually a a lot more in common with their western counterparts uh, than they did they would with their uh, perestroika counterparts or their or their the dissident generation so I mean, you know, we've got a sort of a, we've got different levels of kind of historicity, if you want. So you know, the, the, the kind of deep, deep sort of you know, communist generation, but also uh, you know the, the kind of post-communist uh, use of the concept, which kind of dis- which becomes dissociated from the communist context. I mean, the, again, you know, does this have any you know, political impact? Is it a purely academic? I mean, I, I would suggest it isn't. Pu- actually purely academic although it is significantly academic what do you think
1: well i think in a way you've answered your own question because it really depends on the context in this whole Question rings very differently if you're writing in a Russian context or in a German context uh, than it does in an American context. In America, uh, you know the uh, the Soviet, the communist experience is, is very far away, uh, and in some ways, I've always thought that it's a real limit of the American left how uh, how remote it regards itself from the experience of actually existing communism uh, as it was experienced uh, after World War II in uh, uh, Eastern Europe and uh, the Soviet Union. Uh, So uh, in in America, for most Americans, anti-fascism simply doesn't have those associations. Uh, Most activists wouldn't think of that. So uh, this is why I think, you know, in the United States, certainly, it's primarily an academic discussion of the proper usage of terms in terms of political analysis or for serious historiographic analysis. And there, uh, these debates over how to use terms like democracy, fascism, populism, that, there they obviously do matter. Uh, uh, and uh, you know that that's one reason why I'm proud of the fact we published the essays we did.
0: We actually disagree with you that it's it's a uh, only a US phenomenon, and in fact, even in Europe now, there's actually very little reflection of you know in terms of about the historical kind of meaning of anti-fascism. I think that 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 kind of whole background has, has been largely uh, forgotten, and actually. You know the reaction you know, after the you know immediate the, the Trump's um, notorious tweet about uh, Antifa. Um, f- you know and the, at the height of the George Floyd um, protests, um, you know there was a, in Europe a huge identification with the Black Lives Matter uh, movement, uh, and that went hand in hand with a kind of an, an adoption or identification with the Antifa uh, com- uh, label. As if you know to confirm everything that those who dispose towards a, a Trumpian type of politics would, uh, as, to, as if to concern, confirm their, their their worst beliefs. So it's a kind of a you know, self self perpetuating or self confirming kind of cycle of identification with these labels and a kind of a polarizing effect. But um, but just I mean just to weigh in here a little bit because I mean let's not forget that that. Uh, there's one place where the anti-fascism term is very alive, and that's that's in it's in the, the Russian Federation. Putin and the, his his you know the, the propaganda kind of apparatus that surrounds the Kremlin use the term uh, a as a way of of uh, of popular you know, patriotic mobilisation, but also as a way to justify expansionism, expansionist politics. In Ukraine, so you know, I mean, you know, that this isn't something that's happening a million miles away, uh, in in whether it be in you know Europe or in the U.S. The left, and I, and I, and I'm, this is this is a somewhat polemic, you know, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate a bit, but does the refusal, if it's a refusal or unwillingness to engage with you know the history, the conceptual history of anti-fascism, is that part and parcel of a tendency on the left to not want to actually look at what is being dumped the term in the here and now in Russia, uh, what do you think?
1: I hear what you're saying and I uh, the fact that uh, you uh, were able to uh, bring into our columns and public seminar uh, such a rich uh, uh, set of essays talking about uh, the concrete uh, uh, variation of anti-fascist movements in a place like Russia. Uh, one would hope and I'm I'm going to expect that Natasha Leonard by now has read this piece and it will have modified and affected her own thinking about um, uh, anti-fascism in the United States. However, uh, the insularity and parochialism of uh, uh, Americans should never be underestimated. (laughs) And uh, so, uh, I just find Uh, You know, taken as a whole, what we put together as an issue, a a testament to how labile and um, uh, um, and shape-shifting political terminology can be and how uh, uh, to track its usage really requires a a great deal of finesse and uh, nuance uh, and uh, an openness to being surprised by how uh, the same term appears in quite different contexts.
0: Well, I I think that's a very good uh, conclusion to to our uh, conversation today. I can only urge uh, our readers to uh, look at the, the articles on Public Seminar and on Eurozine. We've been talking to uh, James Miller at Public Seminar. James, I'm really looking forward to collaborating with you again and bringing uh, our, our readers your content and vice versa. Thanks very much for joining us.
1: Well, thanks very much for having me. And rest assured that we at Public Seminar are looking forward keenly to our next
0: collaboration. Let it be soon. Thanks a lot, Jim. And let's see uh, what, what happens uh, you know, in, in November, but also the key moment, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but the, the key, the key uh, moment of truth, as it were, is going, to, is going to be in January. Am I right?
1: Well, I, we don't know yet. I think many of us are hoping there's a sufficiently large landslide for Biden that um, we know um, um, on election night or soon thereafter that Biden has won decisively. Uh, because if this drags on um, uh, and becomes contested and litigated, um, things could get very ugly. But uh, but we'll know a lot more, I, I'm hoping, on election night. And we should know, uh, you know, what I would say uh, to uh, uh, people interested in Europe is watch Florida. Florida is a state that uh, counts its mail-in ballots and early voting before Election Day. And it should have results um, on election night uh, as a result. And if Trump uh, can't win Florida, I don't think he can win. Uh, I think it's an essential state for him.
0: Thanks again, Jim. Speak soon.
1: Okay. Bye-bye.
0: You've been listening to Gagarin, the Eurozine podcast. Please subscribe and rate us on SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you found us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter, which informs you about the latest content published on Eurozine and about new issues of the journals in the Eurozine network. I'm Eurozine editor Simon Garnett. I hope you've enjoyed listening.